0: You are listening to the Prevention is the New Cure podcast, all things health and NHS with a political twist.
1: And that's with me, uh, Dr Helen Stokes-Lampard and Steve Bryan, MP.
0: Hello, Helen. This is episode 17. How are you?
1: I'm, I'm really good, actually. Despite the soggy weather outside, I've got over my chest infection. I'm feeling back to my sparkling self
0: oh brilliant okay well look we will just tease that we have got our most high profile guest yet on today's podcast we, we will introduce have. that person very very soon
1: yeah look before we go on to that and i am genuinely excited about our guest and um, you're on your travels again steve i just confess yeah. up where are you and what are you doing and how does it relate to the podcast
0: I can't say that it's soggy. Um, We're in Singapore this week uh, and it's jolly hot. Um, We are here with the select committee and we are doing this as part of our future cancer inquiry, which, you know, we talked about many, many times. You know, it's something that I am passionate about. It is directly related to prevention in so many, so many ways. So, look, I mean, what I would say, the Singapore, we've been here since... I lose track. Um, Sunday into Monday, we've been here since. So the, the Singapore mindset on cancer, Helen, I, you'll find this really interesting. Mm. Basically, what they do is they we seek to prevent. If we can't do that, we want to detect early, yeah. and when we do detect, we want to give precision treatment. And I really like that. Yeah. So they had this thing called the Precise Program, which is basically under the sort of Health for Life in Singapore. And what that does is it sort of seeks to identify environment, lifestyle, genetic factors that cause... You know, heart disease, cancer, and the other chronic diseases in Singapore. So, yeah, you know, when it comes to genetics, bit of it, basically, I think they they take very much a lot of inspiration from the UK Biobank, and it's quite interesting that we've talked to a lot of people here who've trained in in England. Yeah. Um, trained in the NHS. So they have a huge amount of respect for it. They get a lot of inspiration on genetics from the Biobank, from the Genomics England work, Good. and they're, what they're going to do is try to scale that. I think to the to the Asian context. Then on the sort of the lifestyle, the prevention stuff, look, I think the Ministry of Health, the Healthier SG, Healthier Singapore stuff, they have this thing called the Healthy 365 app, where basically you, the app is then linked to your ID card number, because, of course, everybody here is very, very much linked into the government. And you get rewards, for instance, for the number of steps that you do a day, the rewards that you can spend on certain healthy eating Um, products in Singapore shops so I think that is quite interesting isn't it that that they they do that but um, yeah I suppose yeah go on
1: and I was going to say, also that produced a huge, rich source of data as well coming back, because if you're all signed up through something like that, then the data that's being fed in is going to lead to better information going forward. So I think there's a real cyclical thing there. But I'm presuming you sign up to it, you have to agree to your data being shared in that way.
0: You do, you do, and they're quite hot on that. But I mean, I suppose the other prevention stuff they're doing, I mean, it's all it's all very familiar. So smoke-free, mm. just like hey. us. Um, you know, you have to smoke in little defined areas if you if you do. Vapes are completely banned here, not just. Oh, yeah. as Vapes. there are no vapes Some people people do vape, but they're doing so illegally um obviously big healthy eating, regular physical education that's the the app thing we're talking about a big alcohol push they're not I don't think they're big drinkers in Singapore I mean a beer here is super expensive, which yeah. maybe they, they've moved the price basically yes, yeah it's a big disincentive yeah even for me um <laughs> and and vaccination I mean I think they're you know they're very very hot on vaccination and want to get even better on that on the environment stuff it's really interesting so one of the big cancers one of the big asian killers is gastric is gastric cancer right um and i think that's caused by i forget i forget what it is that that is the virus that causes gastric cancer but we've h- heard
1: quite a lot. h pylori
0: exactly and 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 i think big live a lot of liver cancer here because traditionally of course they didn't have hep b vaccination mm in a lot of asian countries so it's you know hep b infection in the west i think i'm right in saying isn't it is often linked to to lifestyle as in alcohol consumption for instance Um, whereas and intravenous
1: drug use yeah
0: and intravenous drug use exactly whereas here it's more of a of an infection leads to that so so that's sort of where they're going on i suppose on the the healthy lifestyle on the prevent stuff. I mean, honestly, and, I, and I'm going to put a lot of links to this up on my social media and oh. the select committee social media, and then on and we'll share it on ours. But we met people earlier in the week from something called Project Cadence, which is basically stands for cancer detected early can be cured. Oh, and it fab. seems to, yeah, it seems to me that it's basically their version of the Gallery trial that grail are doing, mm-hmm. which we've talked about before, which is the blood. i in, yeah. You are, aren't you? Which is about yeah. the, the early blood test symptomatic. But instead of their pre-symptomatic, so instead of 50 bl- cancers, which Grail goes after, this is a smaller cohort of them. And I think that's quite interesting that they're that they're really pursuing that.
1: Yeah. And if yeah, I chair the end independent clinical oversight group of that. So sit outside the trial. And uh, so a bunch of sort of clinical experts looking at what the study are doing, uh, the results they're getting out on what comes next and it's getting to some really quite exciting stages i'm sure we'll come back to that once there are more reports coming out uh, in the public domain in probably
0: yeah i think the news. The third string is sort of, you know, as I said, uh, you know, you want to take it to early and or they want to prevent it. They want to take it to early. And then, of course, if when they do find it, they want to treat it, pre- precision treatment. So mm. we're going to meet tomorrow. Since we're talking Thursday and it will go out later on today. But we're going to talk tomorrow to uh, Professor Dario Campano, um, who is one of the original founders of CAR-T treatment, ah. CAR-T cell therapy treatment, which, yeah, yeah. again, test my medical knowledge here. I think I'm right in saying that what they do is they take cells from a cancer patient they yes. then give them superpowers yes. and then they put them back in to attack the cancer cells am i perfect. right perfect
1: yes but without a red <laughs> okay. cape and no red pants involved
0: exactly yeah yeah absolutely so so we heard a lot about that and um and the work that's going on here around that he's he's based here even though he's an italian and then this we met this brilliant project called exoscope and Ooh. you know what what will happen is that obviously a clinician oncologist will prescribe you cancer treatment and then you know it may be several weeks or even more before you then measure to see how is it, is it working? This exoscope, this, this, this piece of tech, this health tech that's been developed, can tell you within 24 hours whether it's working. Now, just think of wow. the game changer that that could be. I'm really excited about that.
1: That is genuinely exciting. So, where are they at in the trial stage?
0: There's Exoscope. Um, mm. so there, yeah, it's in it's in trial at the moment, um, okay. but I think it really could could save a lot of lives. And you know, ultimately, if it's not working and it's not going to work, then you give people their life back, um, yeah. or what they what they have of it. Yeah, yeah. And instead of being given toxic treatments for the rest of your days, yeah, you, know, you can. Go and go and have some quality of life th- that's left. So I think, particularly Good. for pediatric oncology, that could be really, really I, a I, real game changer. I
1: can see it throughout the generation, Steve. But yeah, you're right. With pediatric, might be the priority.
0: Yeah, so that's what we're doing here.
1: Wow. Well, I've got a little bit of news to share, and I've been yeah, on, on my travels too. So. So my news is next week, I am going to be at Bletchley Park at the Global AI Safety Summit. Now, this is the sort of frontier AI, the, the, the big, exciting and slightly scary end of AI. Because, um, I you know, I'm a member of the expert advisory panel to the AI task force, not because of my tech knowledge, but because of my knowledge of people in society. But there's only, it turns out, there's only 100 guests going. So it should be fascinating. I think we should talk more about AI and disease prevention in future episodes. Because I think there is... I'd love to a phenomenal potential here once we get the safety stuff sorted the potential the untapped potential is amazing but i also worry in terms of the regulation we've got amazing regulation high quality of the narrow focused ai side of things but we haven't against the more general ai so lots for us to pick up at another time
0: and, of course, the Prime Minister tomorrow, Friday, has his big AI summit, um, which will be really interesting. So, yeah, let, uh, push the pod around when you're there, Helen. Let's see if we I can find some decent guests to come on. See what we can do. <laughs>
1: see what I can do. So, um, party conferences. This was this episode, we were going to touch on the Labour Party conference, Steve. Yeah,
0: yeah. Let's conclude conference season. So, you watched it, as I did, from afar, like the yeah. punters. and you saw what was said about health. What was said about health?
1: So, look, there were, in summary, I don't think there's much to argue with with what was said. Wes Streeting's big speech had a couple of key announcements and 2 million more appointments a year to help cut waiting lists. Tick. Uh, 700,000 more appointments with NHS dentists. I think we need far more than that, to be honest with you, given the NHS dentistry crisis, but it's a great start. Mental health support in every school. I like that one. Uh, good to hear, we, you know, touched on children and young people a lot. And I think mental health, good to hear that. Mental health hubs in the communities and doubling the numbers of scanners. Obviously, you need people to work them. And of course, the biggest expansion of NHS staff in history. What do you think?
0: Um, look, I, I'm all for people who get on the page of Cutting the waiting list. I'm all for people who get on the same page as us on prevention. And Keir Starmer and West Streeting have both spoken about yeah. that. And I think that's that that agenda is secure. Whoever wins the election when it whenever it comes. On the extra, the hundreds of extra appointments mm-hmm. to to cut back on the waiting list, um, and there being a seven-day NHS to do that. I can't help but feel that i've heard this before and i've certainly got the scars on my back having been with the then health secretary when, when it was tried before mm. I, I think that is going to prove more difficult than than it was said from the conference platform that's not to say that it shouldn't be tried because uh, it's a council of despair otherwise but i think that could prove extremely challenging the dentistry thing yeah totally you know in opposition you've got to reflect back in many ways the public's Anxieties as much as you have come up with solutions this far from election, but you know we know we did a big piece of dentistry earlier, dentistry work early this year, and we know that the challenge is the dentistry workforce. There's plenty of dentists; they're just not working in the NHS because the contract yeah. sucks. Exactly. And so, until I hear something really good about how they're going to get NH- to get dentists back to the NHS, um, I think it is just reflecting public anxiety back at them. But, I mean, look, they, they are a serious operation, Keir Starmer and Wes Streeting. Uh, Wes's heart is in the right place. And if the polls are to be believed, you know, he will be the health secretary in, in a year or so's time. Um, and, you know, we want to work with whoever's health secretary for the things that we care about.
1: Yeah, let's see if we can get Wes on the podcast at some point. There's lots to talk about.
0: 100%, yeah. Um, other things from your travels?
1: Yeah, so I have uh, had a real flurry the last couple of weeks of speaking engagements. Um, I, however, haven't been as exotic as going abroad like you. Mine's all been in the UK, but you're going to love this one. I went up to York to speak to a conference of GPs, part of the Modality Partnership, and I was in a room with about 150 happy GPs, Steve. It was so refreshing. Did you bottle that? I, well, I, in my in my heart, I did, Steve. <laughs> but, you know, one thing, you love this one, and we, we both love music, but the icebreaker they had to launch the conference was to get us collectively to write the lyrics for the partnership song and then sing it all together. Oh, my and life. They had a great musician, a sort of vocal coach there to help us through, and they'd set a basic tune up and a few basic lines to get us started. It was awesome. When I find the link, I'll send it to you. But then, yeah, then I've done quite a bit of stuff with Macmillan Cancer. I got to visit some amazing sites in Liverpool. I'm really interested in what you've said in Singapore because – We heard about work going on with people who have cancer that is treatable, but not curable. So there's no prospect of cure. It's helping people have the best supportive care throughout the life they have. And some of the awful problems we run into in the NHS are because of the boundaries of care. You know, the primary, secondary care divide where people run into a problem. They go to their GP and the GP doesn't know how to get them back into the secondary care bit they and um, they need one example I saw was patients who are filling up with fluid in the abdomen, you know, ascites, it's a sort of liquid um, and needs draining off to make them comfortable. And they've, they've just done this fantastic direct access pathway, which just made total sense to me. And I, I loved it. Uh, I spoke to Macmillan Primary Care Professionals Conference in Birmingham. Oh, what inspiring people, Steve, people focused on improving the primary care end of things to speed up diagnosis and improve pathways. So loads of good stuff there. And finally, I spoke to the Ministry of Defence Medical Appraisers Conference. So these are the doctors in throughout the tri-services who appraise other doctors and support them in their professional development. And the, NA, I mean, the military, obviously, they do logistics brilliantly the day round to time. And nothing with doctors normally runs to time. No waiting there. And. Um, but they're they're way ahead of the NHS in many ways in terms of looking at moral hazard, burnout, and even though their financial pressures are just as great as the NHS, there's this fantastic narrative they have about how processes and systems should be designed to support and nurture individuals and not just tick boxes and hit KPIs. And I really loved it.
0: Yeah, it's interesting to get your update on GPS. There's um, another reflection from from here in Singapore is that I we met our opposite number committee uh, the other day. The the, the they call it the Government Parliamentary Committee, basically the Health Committee here. And Dr Meng, who is the chairperson, who mm. went to the University of Cambridge, where, where he studied medicine Trinity. Very good. And, uh, you know, I think his deputy studied at Loughborough and mm-hmm. and, and Exeter. So, you know, all, as I said, they're all, all trained here. But I asked them, what do you think, from the UK medical NHS, what do you think that you most covet? And what do you think the biggest challenge is? And... As I used to get when I used to travel um, as a health minister, general practice. You know, they are try. They want to see more of the general practice model yeah. here in Singapore because yeah. he, 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 the way you put it, I thought was brilliant. He said, "Look, even in the inter- in the era of intelligent data and AI and apps, that personal contact, that conversation with the doctor is critical." And you know, they want to take the best bits of general practice and they want to and they want to see more of it here in Singapore. And I thought that just was just says it well, all, I, doesn't I it? Really? I
1: couldn't have put that better myself, Steve. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah
0: right Um, uh, and yeah love it love it okay should we take a break and then introduce our guest Welcome back. So, we have a very special guest. um doesn't need much introduction other than to say that he's a very good friend of Helen and I, Jeremy Hunt, who is the MP for South West Surrey, which he's been since 2005. He was a culture secretary early on in Cameron's government. Of course, the longest serving health secretary, which is one of the reasons we want to talk to him so much. He's also been foreign secretary and now he's Chancellor of the Exchequer. So, he's collecting gongs and the great wow. offices of state. But most importantly of all, he is on the
2: podcast he, um, with Helen and I.
1: Huge welcome, Chancellor. Can we call each other by first names from now we on? Is
2: Of course we can. If I can call you Helen, you can call me whatever you like. How about
1: that? <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> Let's stick to Jeremy. It's a lot safer. Lovely to meet you again.
2: Right, Helen's
0: going to kick off, Jeremy. Welcome to the podcast.
1: So, look, thank you for sharing your valuable time with us. I'm conscious. I'm still a frontline GP. Every day in practice, it's tense. It's difficult in the NHS because of the massive waiting list challenges we've got. We know this has been exacerbated by industrial action. We've been going around in circles trying to get solutions. Can you see any way through industrial action for doctors?
2: Well, I think it's very challenging at the moment. And uh, and I think... um, it's not entirely clear to me um how much of it is politically driven um at the moment um by certain elements inside the bma i'm read stories which worry me greatly that uh some people do see this as a primarily political battle and the, the problem with that is that if it's political uh there is no solution that's possible because we have a conservative government uh we're going to have a conservative government for some time and uh you know and that could mean strikes up until the election, Um, and from the government's point of view, you know we, we took a lot of pain financially in saying we would accept the independent pay review body recommendations that was not within the Department of Health or NHS budgets. Um, And we're in a period where we have to be incredibly careful about going uh, gangbusters on big pay awards because of the impact on inflation so it's a genuinely very difficult situation. All I would say is that I'm sure there are reasonable elements at the top of the BMA. We certainly would like to engage with them. And if there possibly is a solution, we would love to find it.
1: I have to say I'm hearing good noises about the consultants uh, committee are having some very constructive conversations at the moment, but I, I know the junior doctors were going to be sitting down with the, your colleagues at the DHSC this week, but no readout of, the, of that yet. But I think it's one of these where all of us want everyone to come together and to find some way through. Obviously compromise has to happen on all sides, but um, I just feel as a frontline GP, it is it, you know people are hurting bad enough with the waiting list as they are. Yeah. Um, and this is adding to it. Anyway, Steve.
0: Jeremy, Um you know when we, you chaired the select committee, which I obviously now chair, and we we spoke in the debate when the Health and Care Act went through during your chairmanship of that committee, and we we said in the chamber, didn't we, and we've spoken about this many times, that one of uh, our regrets actually of our time at DH was the lack of workforce planning. Um, the long term workforce plan, the NHS long term workforce plan, is now what four months on from being published. It wouldn't have happened without you and the work you did in the Select Committee and I'm sure the, the pushing that you've done inside government. How do you reflect on that plan now, four months on?
2: Well, I must admit, when I was asked by Liz Truss to be Chancellor almost exactly a year ago, yeah, um, I wasn't quite sure how long it would last because of the the volatility but I thought if I'm chancellor and I can get a long-term workforce plan through for the NHS and if it's the only thing I do then it would have been worth my time so um, I am genuinely really really pleased that we now have this Um, and it it all happened really because um, during the lockdowns um, I had a bit of time to think and i did some self psychotherapy for my 6 years as health secretary and uh wrote this book called zero which i'm just going to uh put a copy on the screen just to remind you um, <laughs> it's a, it's a
1: good book we read it cover together um,
2: thank you um and basically um i concluded in that that this was a big structural failing that because it takes 7 years to train a doctor uh it's never a high enough priority for health secretaries and chancellors when it comes to spending rounds and we never train enough. Yeah, Indeed, I would say, we were talking about the strikes earlier, you know, the root cause of the anger, I mean, there are issues people feel strongly about when it comes to pay, but actually it's uh, it's working conditions. It's the fact that it is so tough on the front line. I mean, Helen, one of the things that worries me enormously is the fact that we, I think now majority of new GPs are only working part-time. And that must be a huge change from when you qualified. And I think a lot of people will say that is because of the stress. They just just couldn't do five days work um, because it's so intense. And that in the end relates to not having enough doctors. I mean, there are lots of other things, but that that is kind of the core of it. So I'm really excited we've done it. We have to make it happen now um there's a massive expansion of um medical school places we'll need new medical schools it isn't just doctors i think one of the things that's really important about that plan is that it goes through all the professions it doesn't cover social care and i think that is still unfinished business um but i i hope for you know let's take the people who are most militantly on strike at the moment which are the junior doctors i hope they might at least draw some comfort that because we are going to be doubling the number of doctors we train, so the number of new doctors coming into the NHS will double year in, year out, uh, going forward, uh, that the kind of pressures they're experiencing on the front line aren't going to be there for their whole working lives. And I think that's the most important promise we can make them.
0: Yeah. So when you say social care is unfinished business, uh, I'm sure that there are plenty in department and NHS England who would sigh deeply at this being said. But is the is the next logical step then a long-term workforce plan for social care?
2: I think with social care, we need a long-term plan, um, you know, uh, to address the things like the integration between the health and the social care systems. And um, we're not, not at a point where we're ready to do that yet, because I think mm-hmm. the NHS is still getting back on its feet post-COVID. Now we have the integrated care boards. We have the opportunity. We have a we have a local NHS that we haven't had before with autonomy yeah. and authority to make arrangements that will really stick with local authorities. So I think the building blocks are there.
0: So just going back then to the to the NHS's workforce plan, yeah, is one of the reasons why chancellors in particular have been reticent about it is that, you know, it is said that the funding of that plan is got a price tag of about a billion quid a year on it. Is is that accurate? And if so, is it factored into your thinking?
2: Yeah, it's, it's, it's probably more than that, actually. Um, And we're committed to funding all those extra training places, absolutely. And, uh, and to growing the um, long term NHS budget um in a way that will mean it'll be able to employ the extra doctors that we train so very much so um but um you know we need i think it's important to say that that is just one element of reform and i think there are lots of other things we need to put in place as well um that one if you don't have enough clinicians it's very hard to do anything else but there are lots of other things that we also need to turn our minds to and
0: so just finally, then on this bit, it is one of those other things, because there's a there's a productivity gain that's assumed in the long term workforce. Plan. I think it's about one point six percent a year. Now, of course, if if the NHS doesn't achieve that, then we can bring in all the numbers that we want at the top. But basically, we'll just be running to stand still in the same place. So do you have any sleepless nights about that productivity gain? Because surely that's at the heart of this.
2: Um, I don't have sleepless nights, but it is absolutely at the heart of this and by the way, not just for the NHS. um, We need to increase our public sector productivity growth by about half a percent a year from its current level, which is about 0.8% a year, if we're going to stabilize the level of taxation. And it's now not just conservatives, I think across the political spectrum, people recognize that we can't go on seeing the tax burden go up and up and up. And The only long-term way to resolve that is by higher productivity. Now, the good news as far as the NHS is concerned is that you don't need to be Albert Einstein to see how to improve that productivity. I mean, you can go into any part of the NHS and you see incredible inefficiency, which is intensely frustrating for the people who work inside the NHS. Um, I was uh, in St Thomas's last week as it happened, and they have just... Uh, a couple of weeks ago switched on epic their it system which will be completely transformational for them but i suspect they're one of the best in the nhs and there are many many hospitals who who have different it systems in different departments and you know nurses spending you know a third of their time filling out paper um and or you know typing into a screen when actually this is information we already have about that patient so I think the opportunity for improving productivity in the NHS is huge, but we have to change our mindset. So does the Treasury, by the way, because what's happened in the past is when the NHS has run out of money, the first thing that gets cancelled is the IT project. Yeah. And what we need to do is recognise that improving productivity has got to be core business for the NHS if we want to retain and motivate our staff.
0: Yeah. And that takes us on neatly to the other thing, which is what this podcast is all about. Helen.
1: Well, prevention. I mean, clearly uh, things we've been building up to Jeremy is that you know, the, the podcast is called Prevention is the New Cure because Steve and I firmly believe that the whole NHS and care and wider society paradigm needs to shift towards a prevention-focused basis of health and care as opposed to a, a sticking plaster, fixing it when it's broken uh, stage. And do you think the whole of government now accepts that?
2: i think so um but um now i'm going to sound like a chancellor and 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 just mm-hmm. talk about the numbers here so one of the things when i was health secretary was literally every single person who came to see you would say you need to do this because it's going to save the nhs money and um i used to say to people do you realize that if you don't offer to save the nhs money then you're the unusual one i've seen that day because everyone seems to come thinking no one else has got a plan that's going to save money but actually um The question is, by when, because there are lots of things that you can do that will save the NHS money in 20 years time, but we we can't afford to do them. And I think what we need to now do, and again, this is a change in treasury thinking, is we need to say, uh, what are the long-term things that we should do that won't save money in the short term, but they're the right thing to do, smoking, obesity, those kinds of things, What are the things that could save us money within five years? If we spend money up front in years one and two, break even in years three and four, and by year five, we're actually saving money on the whole project. What are those things? Now, I think there are lots of things like that. I mean, I think we're going to talk about it, but, you know, early cancer diagnosis is a very good example because the cost.
1: And sexual health is another great one.
2: Sexual health is another one, but there are there are lots of things like that, where we should be prioritizing things which would give us short term savings from prevention measures, by the way, not just in the NHS you could, you could look at antisocial behavior um, and your your crime policies and I think police forces are beginning to uh, understand this very well as well lots of areas. So that that's an absolute perfect bridge,
0: Jeremy, because, you know, we're doing this big prevention inquiry on the social on the select committee at the moment, as you know, and we've done vaccination, and we're now doing healthy places. So where we live, where we work, we're going to be talking about mental health, we're going to be talking about eating and obesity, smoking, drugs, sexual health, early years, childhood, you can see that a lot of those, nothing to do with the department that you and I used to be ministers in, you, you the longest serving Secretary of State for, and you know the frustrations that you don't have the levers in the department for a lot of those things. So... Does government, I guess, see that it's done its bit on prevention, given the brilliant smoking announcement that the prime minister made at conference, or does government have the appetite and indeed the political space to reach into, you know, some of these other things, which we know will move the dial on prevention around obesity, for instance?
2: Well, I think the way it works on public health, my conclusion um, after my time as health secretary was that each generation of politicians has a responsibility to push things forward as much as they can and build on what their predecessors did um you can't get too far ahead of public opinion um, but you you need to move things forward so Caroline Flint did a very very good job in banning smoking in public places mm. and then when I was health secretary I, um, I introduced plain paper packaging um, and banning the display sale of cigarettes. Mm. And now uh, Rishi Sunak is saying that he's going to uh, eliminate smoking for everyone under the age of 14. So it's step-by-step. Step. If Caroline Flint had tried to do what Rishi Sunak did, uh, she wouldn't have succeeded. Yeah. So yeah. it's a step-by-step step thing. And I think it's the same with all the prevention measures when it comes to you know, obesity or um, any of these public health measures. Uh because some of them uh, feel like they're intrusive, some of them Mm. feel, you know, nanny state. Um, Personally, I think that, uh, you know, we have a big obligation to address the fact that we're the the fattest or second fattest country in Europe, according to um, whatever measures you do. And I think Mm. the place to start is childhood obesity. And I'm really proud of the fact that I introduced the national objective that we would halve childhood obesity by 2030 and I think there are some signs that it might be starting to go mm. in the right direction, um, but um, I actually think and when I was doing your job Steve on the select committee. Um, we, we did look at this a little bit. Um, it's incredibly difficult to get the balance right between doing what you need to on obesity and avoiding the fat shaming side of things which which can lead to um the other extreme which is uh you know illnesses like anorexia and so Mm. getting that right is is very challenging and difficult because Mm. i think on obesity it is very linked to social class and Mm. so um you need to try and find a way of targeting your messages to the people who need them the most yeah.
1: Can, I can, move we talk on?
2: can we talk cancer?
1: Yeah, that's what I was going to go for. If that's all right. Jeremy, I mean, all of us have been touched by cancer. I know you very personally, relatively recently, and we are sorry for your loss. I, obviously, I'm a trustee of Macmillan Cancer, one of the largest and most recognizable of the cancer, cancer charities. But of course, there are hundreds of amazing organizations out there. Steve and I have talked a lot here about cancer prevention and obviously, you know, first line primary prevention involves things like the HPV vaccine. And and I know Steve's very proud of of what he achieved then as a minister with with, with getting that through and getting boys vaccinated. How do we, I guess, where can we go next in terms of government's interest in terms of early diagnosis and pushing forward to get diagnosis faster and, and, and better? Because that is a quick win in terms of return on investment. If we diagnose the right cancers earlier that is is a big saving obviously for the the individual for society and in for hard pounds for for government
2: yes i i totally agree with you helen and i think um you know we've got this big ambition um to diagnose i think it's 70 percent of cancers at stage one or two um, by 27 28 from memory um and i think that is absolutely the right objective for the system and i hope we will really be able to turn to that you know i think we've we've got the elective backlog post pandemic mm. we've got the the strikes but for me that would be the next really big thing that i hope the nhs can really start thinking hard about i think these diagnostic centers are a brilliant innovation um and i think um it would also be really helpful to engage with the um, gp profession about this because Um, lots of cancers are missed by GPs because they're seeing so many different conditions and uh, they might actually only see a very small number of people every year who actually have cancer. And so it's a needle in a haystack job in a way. And um, I I think we need to support GPs um, to uh, distinguish better because I think most of a GP's job is trying to keep people out of secondary care but when it comes to detecting a cancer, you're trying to get someone into secondary care as quickly as you can, and that's an incredibly uh, difficult to get that 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 mindset right.
1: Yeah, and one yeah. of my worries, of course, is the people who never get through the door to the GP, who try once or twice and then yes. give up, and then present late. And certainly, we see that. Sorry, Steve. Jeremy,
0: go. as you, you know, I'm I'm speaking to you. you both from from Singapore, where the select committee is talking about as part of our future cancer inquiry now they have a national cancer center here obviously we have the new Marsden being built in london which will be fantastic but it's not a national cancer center they have a national cancer strategy standing on its own um, because cancer is in itself a chronic condition as somebody said to me yesterday here um we have of course the long major conditions strategy which includes cancer Sh- should the sector be as worried as it is about that
2: um i think The truth is that um, when the NHS is under the pressure it's under, it's very important to people that we are honest about what we are able to prioritise. And I think at the moment, uh, particularly because of the strikes, it is really very, very hard to have individual disease strategies um, in the way that we've had in previous times. Would I like to get back to that? Um, you know, of course, I think it's a, it's a great idea. And, uh, you know, I remember we shortly after, well, I did the NHS 10 year plan. Um, and, uh, you know, that had a very strong cancer part to it, but I think we also have to be honest that the NHS has just come through its biggest ever test with the pandemic. And, um, so I think it's going to take a bit of time before we can start doing those things. But what I would say, Steve, is that, Um, what that pandemic taught us was, first of all, that the NHS actually did a very, very good job when it came to COVID. And I think it's now, it's interesting, if you look at our excess death rates compared to other countries, uh, we were no worse than uh, countries. And in fact, you know, I saw some figures recently that said that we actually had lower excess deaths than Germany, which was certainly a very different picture than was presented more broadly. But we've also got to be honest about what went wrong. And the reason that the NHS was able to respond so well to COVID was because in a centralised system, we switched off all the treatment for other conditions. And we were able to do that um, in a way that other countries couldn't. And the price we're paying now is an enormous backlog. Yeah, Yeah. It's a backlog that other countries don't have. They didn't switch off so much care. So the big lesson for the future is how do you cope with a pandemic without having to switch off your cancer care, yeah. uh, your dementia care, your all the other services that are so important.
0: Look, Chancellor, we've got a couple of min- final couple of minutes with you. I'm sorry you have to be exposed to the pod surgery, but we just press this button. That means that the surgery is open. Sorry about that. Um, Loads and loads and loads and loads of questions, as you can probably imagine about that. Uh, One of them came from Lord Bethel, James Bethel, who you know, who's a health minister in Lords. What prevention interventions will be positively scored by the OBR? And if there are none, how are we going to prioritise spending on prevention? So he's talking about the economic impact of prevention, which is
2: key, right? Um, The OBR probably wouldn't score at that kind of a micro level um but what they would do is they would make a judgment about the overall credibility of the nhs budget and its ability to live within what we can afford for it and to do that we are going to need to do prevention
1: yeah
0: yeah makes sense okay um, do... go on helen do tiny
1: yeah, Tony Rowe, quick question about alcohol-related mortality. We we mentioned alcohol in passing earlier. The question that came in was, um, we've got more alcohol-related deaths now than we had several years ago. Is there any hope for the comprehensive alcohol strategy that was promised, I think, even before your time as uh, Secretary of State, Jeremy, coming into reality?
2: Um, I'm going to have to pass on that because I don't know the answer. I'm sorry, <laughs> but that, that is one for... Steve Barclay, um, but I'm afraid I, just, uh, I don't know what the situation it, is. About. It's a dog,
1: we'll keep banging on the pod, I'm sure. It
0: just so happens he'll be before the select committee very soon. Um, <laughs> listen, thanks for joining us. Um, we we have a tradition on the podcast, Jeremy, and I was at the pharmacy show the other day in Birmingham and somebody came up to me and said they enjoy the podcast. I thought, well, that's nice. And they said, what I really enjoy hearing is, how's your dog? Uh, because we often talk about Monty, my dog. Now, we know that you and I are fellow Labrador lovers. Um, so can you give us a hunt dog update, please? I'm afraid Poppy
2: is a vastly superior dog to Monty. Controversial. Oh! <laughs> I will tell um, him that, <laughs> um, um, and uh, I don't want to be competitive in any way at all. Um, but uh, all boys, I boys. Is, all, all I will say is that uh, um, Poppy, uh, having been when she she's two now, and having had an absolute family rule that she slept in the kitchen. She now sleeps firmly at the bottom of our bed. So Yeah, yeah. those
0: rules never last. You're you're always tweeting pictures, aren't you, out out with Poppy? That's lovely. But Poppy and Monty together, you know, they would be a beautiful partnership. That's all I'm saying.
2: (laughs) hey boys. And
0: he's always up for that, always. Listen, thank you so much for coming on. Um, We really appreciate your time, and we'll see you soon. See you soon. Thanks, both. Bye-bye. Cheers, Steve. Cheers, cheers, Helen. God bless, Jeremy. See you soon. Bye. Bye. And off he goes to be Chancellor some more. Um, That was great, wasn't it? He's a nice guy, isn't he?
1: He is. And I can't believe how many questions he took from us. We kept pushing the time and time. But, you know, he was great.
0: He was really good. I mean, reflections on what he said, Helen, on cancer, on prevention, (laughs) obesity,
1: I mean, he, he really gets all this stuff. I mean, you know, you don't be Secretary of State for Health and Social Care for that long to not understand so many of these issues. And obviously he's had the personal encounter with his, losing his brother to cancer in the last year. Um, I think I'm conscious he had to be careful what he said now far he could go with anything related to, to the money, which is always a limitation. And and I wanted to push him a bit harder on a couple of things, but I just, I just wanted also to just sit back and listen to what he had to say. To say,
0: I think I think the politician there and the guy who's number two in the government, when he said about, and I asked him about obesity, and you know, is the smoking move that the the, the prime minister made at conference, is that sort of the government's bit. On prevention mm. for, for the rest of this parliament. And you know, he said, didn't he, you can't get ahead of the public. And that I think that is that is interesting, but it's also just realpolitik, isn't it? That you know, yeah. the public are where they are, um, but also the politics is where it is. And I know the evidence stares us in the face, but we also have to recognize the the political situation is where it is and um you know in an election year it's going to be very hard to to move too far on this stuff so we've got to be careful about how we do it as a government and make sure that we have the evidence base behind us which is where we can help <laughs> and so many others can too
1: Yeah, I'm conscious there were so many questions and suggestions we got through various social media feedback. And thank you to everybody who posted on Twitter, LinkedIn, personal emails, WhatsApp us. Uh, We tried to incorporate quite a lot of your questions into what we did pitch to Secretary of State. But I think there's a lot more we can pick up in future. I thought his challenge about the alcohol one was fair enough to say, no, that's one for Secretary of State for health and social care. Um, Although I do think we should come back to alcohol in future, Steve.
0: Yeah, and, and he, de- and he def- definitely, and he also accepts, doesn't he, the premise that prevention is really the only real route yes. to, a, to a sustainable NHS. I mean, I think yeah. if you accept that as your basic promise, it's a good place to be. And um, yeah, it was really nice to talk to him. And of course, you know, we got a dog dog update.
1: Oh, wasn't that a treat? Although I have yeah. to say at one point, I did think I was going to have to throw a bucket of cold water over the pair of you. No competition necessary. All dogs oh. are lovely. I'm well, going to
0: feed back to Monty really? that I've found in the perfect suitor.
1: Don't do it, Steve. Don't Although play to Matchmaker. Be, be Although,
0: fa- to be fair, to give you a Monty update just briefly, he isn't choosy.
1: You, well, you've implied this before, Steve. And look, you know, <laughs> I, I I always say playing Matchmaker is a dangerous game to play. So I would just let Monty do what Monty does, but be nice about it.
0: Yeah, well, this weekend he's off to his dog sitter because uh, we're, we're doing something that we can't take dog to. So he's off to see Karen.
1: Oh, well, with he her, with her dog.
0: He likes Karen and uh, her dog, Rocky. And uh, we often get a photo from Karen of him on his back, legs in the air, everything on display on her sofa.
1: Well, so, I'm yeah. going to to visit family and I should be having lots of cuddles from the ridiculously long-haired and affectionate Oreo who is a cat who is my brother's cat and so Mm -hmm. I should be having Oreo cuddles because I'm missing my feline friends around the house as we are without cats for the first time in 26 years and my husband and I are definitely missing some feline company. So
0: bless you. Well look there you go so (laughs) for everybody who wanted a pet update and a Monty update including the chap who came up to me at the pharmacy show and mentioned him uh, there you go duly delivered Uh, what a great podcast thank you so much podcast at stevebrine.com Find us on social media channels and feedback what you think of what we've discussed. And we'll see you next time.
1: Bye.